0: Amen. God bless you as so you give. All right, so today we're wrapping up this series on the subject of worship. So I've called it the five W's, trying to cheat a little bit from the W5 TV show. I hope I don't get in legal trouble for that. But anyway, just, just the idea of who, what, where, when, and why when we talk about worship. And we've, we've done this for the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've talked about the, this story in John's Gospel. In John chapter 4, we see a very interesting and unique story that Jesus, uh, a story of a conversation that Jesus had with a very unique person, and we we chipped away at some of these questions. You remember at the beginning, we we asked some questions to ourselves. Uh, How do we know what or who we really worship? And we talked about where are your thoughts? Uh, Where do you put your time? Where do you put your talent? Where do you put your treasure? So your time, your talent, your treasure, and your thoughts, that's going to tell you who or what you really do worship. We often profess to be worshipers of God, and if you challenge the Christian and you say, who do you worship? Oh, I worship God. But if you look at their time, talent, treasure, and thoughts, maybe there's a little bit of a discrepancy there. Sometimes there is, all right? And then last week, we talked about the idea of um, who do we worship and why is he worthy of worship? And we looked at some of those qualities of God, right? We talked about him being eternal, and we talked about him being present everywhere and knowing everything and being all-powerful and being unchanging and being... Personal and being holy, and these kinds of characteristics that we don't really find anywhere else make us uh, uh, people who would, it makes God worthy for us people to worship Him. Because you, you can't find that combination of characteristics anywhere else. You will always run into a dead end, into a wall. If you try and worship something else, it's going to leave you unsatisfied, going to leave you dry. And so today, we want to talk about this where and when uh, do we worship. Again, this story is found in John's Gospel, John chapter 4 and verses 1 to 26 and even beyond. It's, a, it's an amazing conversation if you know some of the, the history there. And if you remember, what's going on is that Jesus is aware that the Pharisees are aware that Jesus is gaining in popularity, in particular in the amount of people that are being baptized. Uh, so John 4 and 1, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. So the Pharisees, the ultra-religious people of the day who had many confrontations with Jesus, they hear of this popularity, uh, and Jesus learns of this. And because he learns of this popularity, he decides to change where he's at. If you go to the next slide there, and the next one. So if you remember this, Jesus is down in Judea, And he wants to go up to Galilee because he hears that the Pharisees know of his popularity. Probably he wants to avoid a confrontation with them. They're down south there uh, in Jerusalem or in in the whole Judean area. And he probably wants to get away from them because they're a distraction. Uh, Probably. It doesn't say why he decides to change his course, But probably that's the reason, and you see this curious passage, we went over this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. You see, Galilee is the province up north, it's yellow, and Judea is down south, and if you remember, we talked about the whole history, the rift between the the Jewish people or the people who lived in Judea. After they were brought back from Babylonian captivity and the people who lived up north in Samaria. Samaria is like the present day West Bank, if any of you are familiar with the Holy Land area. And there's this rift that's, that's a thousand years old uh, at the time that Jesus has this conversation between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the Jews thought that the Samaritans weren't real Jews because they were kind of, you know, the Assyrians had interbred people with the existing Jewish people. And You had these Samaritans, and you had this whole different worship system up north and all this stuff. If you remember, you're still with me? Okay. <laughs> one person's with me. I'm going to keep going, okay? Where one is with me, I shall continue. So, so Jesus wants to take go up to Galilee, we're told. And it says he had to go through Samaria. And if you remember, well, I mean, he can walk through Samaria, but he could also have gotten in a boat and taken the Jordan River. Some scholars think that the compulsion to, to go through Samaria was so that he would actually have this encounter, this discussion, this conversation with this woman who only John tells us of this conversation, but I mean, Jesus could have chosen an alternate route if he wanted to, but he goes right into the Samaritan area, and this would have been a taboo. It would have been a little shocking for the disciples. We're told that they go into the town, probably the town of Sychar, to buy food, and we see of this discussion where Jesus asks this woman, She's alone, he's alone, and he asks this Samaritan woman, will you give me some water from this well? And it leads to this, whoa, this elaborate dialogue about uh, rivers of living water, uh, and the subject of worship comes up uh, when Jesus starts to poke into her personal life. And, uh, you know, he says to her, go and call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right. In fact, you've had five of them, and the man that you have right now is not your husband. And so he's, he's aware of her personal life, and then you start to see the conversation shift to the subject of worship. So just looking at some of it here uh, from verse 17 of John chapter 4 or 16, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband, and Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, so she, was, she apparently got around, uh, this lady, this Samaritan woman. In fact, you've had five of them, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true, and what she will do is she will now divert the conversation, and she says, sir... Uh, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. So she's a Samaritan, and what she's referring to there is that uh, even in the ancient past, before the split that took place in the Civil War in in Israel, uh, where you had the north and the south, even before that, we see in the book of Deuteronomy that they worshiped. Uh, on Mount Gerizim, which is right where they're having this discussion. And she says, hey, our fathers worshiped on Mount Gerizim, on this mountain, but you Jews, you claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's very clever. She's diverting the conversation away from her personal life, aware that Jesus somehow has the ability to know about it. And she gets into the proverbial debate of the day Where should we worship? I can see you're a prophet. We Samaritans, we worship up north. We have Mount Gerizim. We have our whole thing, our whole worship system. We have no need of the south. We have no need of Jerusalem. We have no need of the temple. But you Jews, you say that the place that we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she's diverted away. Interestingly enough, Jesus is not going to keep going after her personal life. He's probably poked around enough And she's now aware of his ability and has an inkling that she's dealing with someone beyond her her kind of understanding. And this is what Jesus says. It's a stunning, stunning statement when you truly think about the subject of worship. He says, believe me, woman, and he doesn't mean that in a rude sense, okay? Believe me, woman, a time is coming, a time is coming when you will worship the Father Neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, that would be referring to, neither on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem. So, you want to talk about worship? I'm going to tell you about worship. A time is coming where the question of where you worship and even when you worship is not going to be about Mount Gerizim, it's not going to be about Samaria, it's not going to be about Jerusalem. You Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. And we talked about that in the, in the first week. You can listen to it online uh, just to catch up. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Again, referring to the whole history of what went on there. Yet a time is coming. There it is again. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father and He doesn't say a location will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And he is talking about the when and the where. And this is a stunning thing that he says to this woman, because the debate and the, the, the understanding of the people, the Samaritans and the Jews, was that worship was about a place, it was about a system, it was about a way of doing things, it was about sacrifices, and in particular, for the Jews, it was about the temple, so up north, the Samaritans, they had their own whole thing that they, that they got going there. It started way back under Jeroboam's day, and he injected all of this pagan stuff in, and you had a whole mishmash, you had a huge mess up there in, in Samaria, or what was called Israel back in Jeroboam's day. And uh, you, had, you had even things as abominable as the sacrifice of children. You had all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Down south, it, must, it wasn't much better. I mean, most of the kings in, Ju, in Judea and Jerusalem were wicked as well. Some were godly, but most were wicked. But for sure, both of these groups felt that worship is about a place, worship is about a time, worship is about the sacrifices. Let me show you what Jerusalem and the temple area would have looked like back then. Uh, this is actually a scale model uh, and you see the, the little house in the center? It's actually fairly big. That's that's what the temple... If we can turn off that radio. Yeah, it's over there. That's the Pastor Joe blunder that happens every Saturday. <laughs> I don't turn off the radio. So if you see, that's the temple. And all of that wall that you see around there, it was Herod the Great who enlarged it. Um, he couldn't enlarge the temple itself Because God had given the dimensions in the Old Testament of, you know, the size and all that and how it should be built. So what he did was he built this huge enlargement and this wall that surrounded the whole area of the temple. And this, to the Jews, was the place of worship. If you're going to worship God, you go to that temple. They had several feasts and holidays where they had to go there. Uh, They were pilgrimage feasts, and they had to go there. That was the place, in their view, that God dwelt. It was there in that temple. The Samaritans, they felt that it was up north on Mount Gerizim, and in archaeology, we can see makeshift places of worship and things that were built there, but there was nothing as spectacular as that temple down south, and that was the place to be. Uh, In fact, you can even see a little bit of it left over today. If you were to go to that back wall, uh, and if we were somehow able to turn this model, you know, 180 degrees and look at that back wall, we would see what's on the next slide. And this is kind of behind the temple. And you see where it says the Wailing Wall there? And you see where it says Wilson's Arch? Do you see those things? Okay, if you go to the next slide it's still standing okay so that that wall the the outer encasing wall that Herod had had put up uh, a little slice of that wall is still standing even after the romans had taken out jerusalem and and the temple and the walls and everything in the year 70 you still have a little bit that remains and it's considered the most holy site uh in certainly in judaism uh and in Christianity, this is very much revered. Have any of you ever been there? Have you ever been to Israel? Okay, well, you see it in two dimensions here, a little flat screen, but that wall is really there, and that arch is really there, and those things are 2,000 years old, Uh, but they're based on the idea that God dwells in the temple, and worship is about a place And worship is about a time, and worship is about a system, and sacrifices, and all of these kinds of things. And the question for us in this conversation that applies to us today is where and when do we really worship God? Where and when? So if you're talking to a Samaritan, the Samaritan will say, Mount Gerizim. This is what, the, what the, the Samaritan woman says. And if you ask the Jews back then, and even the Jews today, I mean, they would much rather worship in Jerusalem than they would in a synagogue in Montreal. If you ask the Jews today, they'd say Jerusalem is the place of worship. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying neither. And he's saying neither to a Samaritan woman. He's saying a time is coming when you will not worship there, You will not worship there. You will worship not because of the place and the time, but because God is spirit. And the true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's a a stunning thing. It implies, perhaps, that the temple won't be there. And in fact, it isn't. Forty years after Jesus had the conversation, the temple was destroyed. All that's left is that wall. Now, today in modern in modern circles, when we talk about worship and we use this word worship, we don't use it in daily conversation. I mean, when you're talking to people in your school or your work, you don't you don't talk you don't use the word worship, right? Because if you use it, they're going to think you're nuts. Or they they think you're talking about the queen or, you know, they say, well, who worships? I mean, did you see a movie that had kings and queens in it? You know, they're not going to understand this word worship. But we go into church and we use the word all the time. But the way that we use it and our understanding of this word worship is at times very much off the mark of this conversation that Jesus had even with this Samaritan woman. So what do I mean by this? When we think of worship, we think of, okay, we've got a little band, we've got four songs, and we say, okay, that was great worship. Most of the time, if you're, if you're a pastor like me and you talk, to, you talk to lots of other people, other pastors, other Christians, you hear more criticisms about worship than anything else. Oh, well, I didn't like the song, or they sing hymns, or they sing choruses, or I don't like the way the worship team dresses, or I don't like their lights, I don't like their black movie theater, nah, 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 nah. You hear a lot of criticisms, but the, the idea of worship is, well, you know, it's the four or five songs that they sing when they get together, and, they, and that's worship and we say, oh, the worship was really anointed, or the worship was really bad, or did you enter into worship? And we use all of this jargon and all of this language as if we're saying that, okay, worship is when we do that singing, music kind of thing. When you look into the pages of the scripture and you try and search for this same kind of language and this same kind of understanding of worship, you're left scratching your head, because you realize that the way that worship is described in the scripture is so much broader than when the people would get together and sing. It's even more broad than when the people would come together and sacrifice in the Old Testament. It's much, much more broad, and it's a little bit disturbing because it seems like our understanding is so, so limited. As if we're almost cheating ourselves with this whole thing of what is worship and where does it take place. Let me give you uh, a few examples of this. If you, if you, if you look up this, the word worship or worshipped or worshipping and you look at the time and the circumstance and when people did it and where people did, you're, you're sort of left scratching your head. Even especially in the pages of the New Testament. It's very difficult to build any kind of theology or any kind of understanding that worship is what happens when the people get together for 20 minutes uh, and they sing. You, you don't see anything like that. You see something wildly different. Um, first example I'll give you, where and when do we worship? I'll give you an Old Testament example, and I mentioned this in this series before. Uh, I will never forget when I heard a man preach on this text. His name is David Ravenhill. Uh, David Ravenhill is the son of a preacher by the name of Leonard Ravenhill, who, who uh, my, my friend there, Lewis, really likes uh, uh, David Raven, uh, Leonard Ravenhill. Some of you have never heard of Leonard Ravenhill. This man was a revivalist preacher, a uh, very, very challenging preacher to say the least. If you want to be challenged Um, you can listen or watch old videos of Leonard Ravenhill. But I never forget the time, I'll never forget it, when I saw his son preach um, at a church, and he preached on this text from Job uh, chapter 1 and verse 20. Um, And the story uh, in the first 20 verses of of Job, I mean, you talk about being in the middle of a mess. Uh, Any of you ever read the book of Job before? It's, it's what you read when things are going really bad in life. Usually, that's when people pick up the book of Job. And you've got this man portrayed for, for you in the first 20 verses. He's extremely wealthy. He's extremely prosperous for the standards of the day. He seems to have everything. He, he's very close to God. Uh, he's got 10 kids. He's got livestock that you can barely count um, and there's, a, there's a, a debate that takes place between God and the devil in the first few verses of the book, where essentially the devil is saying to, to God, this guy Job only worships you because of what you give him. That's the only reason why he does. You take away all of his stuff, and he's not going to worship you anymore. That's basically the debate that uh, Satan, as he's titled there in the book of Job, uh, has with God. Sort of an yeah. invisible debate. And uh, it seems that God gives certain permission uh, for Job, therefore, to be attacked in many different ways to see if this is true. That he worships God just because of what God gives him. And God seems to give certain permissions in this particular story for Job to suffer and to go through these problems. Again, this is a, this is a very unique story. Uh, some people say, oh, well, does God do that in my life today? Blah, blah, blah. I don't have warrant to say that. All I have warrant to say is this is what Job says, this is what the book says, and this is a very particular uh, story. And so what happens to Job is that everything falls apart very, very, very fast. All kinds of things happen in rapid fire succession. He loses his, his livestock. He loses his servants. People are killed. The house crumbles. All these things start happening one after the other, after the other. Everyone is gone. The only, the only thing he has left is a wife who isn't particularly encouraging and he's still alive. Uh, At one point in the book of Job, his wife actually says, you know what you need to do? You need to curse God and die. That's what you need to do, Job, uh, till death do us part. You know, and maybe Job might have wished here and there that he lost her as well, but but he didn't lose her. And you see this magnificent reaction. I'll never forget when David Ravenhill preached on this. At this, after he loses everything, immediately, verse 20 of Job, chapter 1. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship, in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away May the name of the Lord be praised. (laughs) And verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Why this reaction of worship when he lost everything except a nagging wife and his own life? How is it that he is still able to fall to the ground, have a proper understanding of, of the nature of God and the sovereign power of God, he says, you know what? God gave it to me, God has taken it away from me, and may his name be praised. We sometimes use this text in funerals, and yet God did, Job did not charge God and did not sin by charging God with the wrongdoing. It is a stunning reaction that he has. And it, it parallels in some ways, though it's though it's many, many years prior, this idea that worship is not a place, is not a time, it's, it's you worship God in spirit and you worship God in truth. Where was Job? Was he in a setting where there was music? Was he being encouraged by other people? Nope. He's all by himself. He's all alone. He's, nobody is there. It's just him all by himself. You worship when you have nothing left, when it all seems to have vanished from you, when it seems to have gone through your fingers and everything is just gone, you turn around and you worship God. That's what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. This week, I was telling some, some people uh, before the service uh, started, um, it wasn't this week, it was yesterday, I found out that my bank account had been hacked Any of you ever have that happen where they go into your bank account and they transfer money out of your account and steal money from you and transfer it to themselves? Well, me, who I think that I'm tech savvy, uh, I got hacked and spent hours yesterday, even in this morning, trying to deal with this, with this invisible cyber uh, thief who messed up my, my day yesterday. I think it took about five different new chip cards to finally get a, get a card that would actually work so that I could operate and actually take money out of my own bank account. I mean, it was just that dreadful mess. Well, you magnify that many, many times over. That's nothing compared to what Job went through, nothing. I mean, and the initial reaction that I had it wasn't to worship God. It wasn't to worship God at all. It was to say, well, what did I do to deserve this? Like, why does this have to, have to happen now to me? You're right. That's our, that's our initial reaction to some of these things. And you look at how Job behaved, no music, no, no synagogue, no church setting, no nothing. He's all by himself and he lost everything. That's when you worship God. In spirit and in truth. Let me give you some examples from the New Testament. Again, you you search for that word worship, and how people did it, when people did it, where they did it, and you come up with all of these these strange examples. Uh, we looked at this at Christmas time, and here you have uh, the the wise men, these these Persian. Uh, half astronomers, half astrologers, half who knows what, who travel hundreds of miles following this bizarre star, all with the intent of doing what? Worshiping a child, because they believe that that child is God. They finally run into Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, he's not an infant, as we saw when we looked at Christmas. He's, he's a little bit older. Maybe he's up to two years old at this point. We're not sure. And they finally run into this one that they've been searching for for a long time, perhaps months. On coming to the house, they saw the child. It's a little child, Okay, probably two years old. And they go and they see this child with his mother, Mary. And what do they do? They bow down and they worship this child. And they open their treasures and present him with gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are, these are symbolic of the recognition of the deity of this child. How in the world were they able to understand that and perceive that? We don't know. They're not Jewish they're not Christian, they're, they're Persian. I mean, these people come out of a mishmash, pagan background, whatever, and yet they recognize this. They're not in a church service, there's no music, there's no synagogue, they're in a house, and they are worshiping this child. This is a little bit of what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. You worship God for who He is, not just what He does you, like that old preacher Ravenhill said. It's, it's, not, it's not all the things that you get from God. That's not the first reason that you worship him. You worship him because of who he is. They didn't get anything, these wise men, in return, nothing, just the satisfaction of seeing this child. That was enough. After they had worshiped him, they went home. They didn't get anything back. It was just, I finally saw the child and i've given my gifts to the child and they got nothing or it's nothing's recorded that they got anything in return except to it be in the same house with Jesus even as a little child he it doesn't even say that Jesus said anything who, who knows he probably couldn't even talk he's probably goo goo gaga and yet they're bowing down and they're worshiping this child wow not because of what they got it, not because of blessing, not because of, it's because of who the child is, and they're in a house, no church service, no synagogue service, no music, no instruments, no nothing. Third example that I found, uh, and there are many like this. Um, you you worship when it seems that God has left you. Uh, that God has left you. Uh, this, is a, this is a curious example. There aren't, there aren't many like this one. Uh, there are many uh, examples that aren't in a church setting, I should say. Uh, but this is when Jesus leaves. So this is in Luke chapter 24 and uh, around verses 50 to 53. So this is when Jesus is saying bye to his followers, bye to his disciples. This is called, uh, in, in theological terms, the ascension, when he's going to go. He's going to go up into the sky. He's going to say, bye-bye. And so he has this brief discussion with them, and he tells them, you need to wait in Jerusalem. You need to wait for the power of God to come on you so that you can do all the stuff that you need to do for me. You need to wait in Jerusalem for that. And, uh, and then it says in verse 50, when he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, uh, uh, when, they, when he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands And he blessed them, and while he was blessing them, he left. He left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshiped him. He's leaving. He he is God in the flesh who's been with them probably for three years. He tells them you need to stay in Jerusalem. The power of God is going to come, but you need to stay there until it happens. And he's going up into the sky, literally, and he's taken up into heaven, and they worshiped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy. He's gone. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. They told him, he told them to go to Jerusalem. So they go to the place that they know, the temple. But how is it that they're able to worship when he's gone? He left. I mean, if we were in their shoes, we would probably be, oh, the world is going to end. Like, um, he's gone. He went up into the sky. He can talk about waiting and power and promise and all of that. He's gone. Our lives are now over. Like everything's going to go back to normal. This is a bad, bad situation. But their attitude is totally the opposite. It's like God left them. God in the flesh left them. And yet they turn around and worship God. Have you ever felt that God has left you? You ever felt like, uh, yeah, you try praying and it bounces off the ceiling, like your prayers go about two inches and then they drop like a rock. You know, they drop harder than they go up, it feels like, right? You feel like, well, God has left, he's abandoned me, you know, he's forsaken me. Well, that's when you turn around and you worship him. It seems totally counterintuitive to do, but this is the example that we see. Uh, Another one that I'll give to you. Um, and this, they were on a mountain, no music, no singing, no instruments, different example. Uh, so here in Matthew chapter 14 uh, and verse 33, and you can also see this in, um, in uh, Luke's gospel, or Mark, I'm sorry, and this is the story of Jesus walking on water. Uh, they the, they just fed all these thousands of people, you know, the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 and they're on a high and, uh, verse 22 of Matthew 14, immediately Jesus made the disciples get in a boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. Uh, this is probably the sea of Galilee, if I remember correctly. And when he dismissed the crowd, uh, he dismisses them. And then he goes up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Then it gets late, gets late at night. Jesus is there all by himself. The boat's already out in the Sea of Galilee, and you've got wind and waves that are pushing against this boat. You've got a squall probably that's pushing against it, and it probably would have been a fierce one. And so shortly after dawn, Jesus goes out to these, these disciples on the boat, and he's walking on the lake okay? And, they're, and they are stunned. They don't know it's Jesus. They, we're told they're terrified and they cry out. They think it's a, some kind of a ghost. And, and Jesus talks to them. He says to them, take courage in his eye. Don't be afraid. Do they believe him? Not really. Uh, Peter decides to challenge him. And he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. I mean, that's a That's either a fool or a very bold man, Uh, maybe a a little bit of both. And he says, well, if it's you and it's not a ghost, you tell me to walk on the water to you. So uh, very, very bold. Uh, And and Jesus replies, come. (laughs) So he gets up out, he stands out of the boat, and he starts walking on the water, Peter, okay? And he doesn't walk on the water very long uh, because he looks around, he sees the wind, he sees the squall, we're told, and he's afraid he starts to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reaches out his hand and he catches him. And what does he say to him? He chastises him a little bit. You have little faith, why did you doubt? And look at the reaction of the disciples. And when they climbed into the boat, or when Jesus climbed into the boat specifically, it's him and Peter, the wind died down. So you get Jesus in the boat and oh, it, it calms uh, this storm. And you see the reaction of the disciples who were in the boat, those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. They are in awe by what they just saw. They just saw him walk on water, which is a miraculous thing. It's impossible to do. And they just saw that the storm itself calmed as soon as he got to the boat. You know, you face many, many storms in life. I don't know if any of you ever tried to walk on water. You shouldn't try that, okay? It's, your odds of walking are not good. Uh, but uh, there are storms that we have in life, aren't there? And, uh, and that's how we can apply that story. Uh, and we go through these things. They seem to come and go, sometimes even as they choose. Uh, but when you survive the storm, uh, you, you need to have an awe of God and what God has done. You you need to worship him and have an awe of him. There are situations that I'm sure many of you have lived through in this room. Uh, Don't take for granted that it wasn't God who had a hand in that situation and adjusted that situation and brought peace to a storm. Don't you take it for granted and think it just happened. Uh, God is sovereign over all the affairs of life ultimately. I don't understand all the mysteries of that because I know some of your stories and some of your, stor- your storms are pretty fierce. But when you make it through a storm, you need to have an awe of God. You need to say, you know what, God, I worship you because somehow you brought me through another one. Somehow I made it through another storm uh, and it wasn't me. The, the day that you think it's your ingenuity and your intelligence that brought you through the storm, you know what that's called? That's called pride. And when you have that kind of pride, that's not a good thing, okay? You don't want that kind of pride. You need to have a healthy awe of God and say, you know what? In the end, it's God who got me through this storm, and, and, I, and I worship him. I don't understand it all, but I worship him. And where were the disciples when they worshiped Jesus? Were they in a synagogue? Were they in a church service? With any music? Any instruments? Was it the Sabbath day? Nope. They're in a boat. It seems to imply That what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman, it's not about the time, it's not about the place, it's not about the location, it's not about the sacrificial system. God does not live in temples built by human hands. He says to the Samaritan, God is spirit. He's not limited by time. He's not limited by location. He's spirit and you need to worship him in spirit, but also Samaritan woman in truth, because the Samaritans are worshiping in error. They got a mishmash of all these different concepts of gods and goddesses, and they throw in Jehovah in there in the whole mix. No, there's, there's you worship in truth, but you can also worship in error, he's saying. You need to know who God is, and you need to worship God not because of a location or time. Uh, But you need to worship in spirit and in truth. This is what he's saying, and this is what we see people living in the pages of the Scripture. So what happens today? We say, well, you know, let's get dressed up and let's go to church for a worship service. Um, It's one of the reasons why nobody dresses up around here. I mean, if if you dress up to go to a church service or what you think is a worship service, what do you do the other six days of the week? Do you wear clothes? Well, what clothes do you wear? Do you not worship God the other six days of the week? Or is it only on one day of the week for 20 minutes that we worship God? Your your understanding begins to change when you realize, hey, worship is not about that little thing. Worship is about the way that I live my life. It's my lifestyle that will show whether I worship God in spirit and in truth, I could be in a boat, I could be alone when no one's looking, I could have lost it all, uh, I, I could be in a storm, I can worship God anywhere, anytime, any place. This is to worship God in spirit and in truth. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, will close with this. This is how Paul, Paul uh, uh, defines it. And he, he's he's told the Romans about the whole idea of God's grace and God's mercy, and that God has given us the gift of salvation, and so on. And he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of this, in view of God's mercy, you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is a play on words. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament are all dead. Okay, you you kill an animal and you present it to God. You may burn it. You may do many different things with it. You see this in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. But he's saying, no, you offer you. your, Your bodies, that's all you know, that's all you are. You offer you as a sacrifice, but one that's alive. And you give that to God. That's holy and that's pleasing to God. It's you. You say, well, I don't feel holy. I don't feel pleasing to God. I don't look too good. <laughs> well, it's not about that. It's about you saying, God, this is me, and you can have the whole thing. I, I give myself to you. I, I offer me to you. And it says that God is pleased with this. This is a holy and pleasing thing to God. This is your true, and this is your proper worship. And then he, and then he goes on. As if to say, well, how do we do this? And he says, do not conform. We've talked about this before. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You think differently. If you want to worship God properly, you think differently and you live differently than the pattern that you see in this world. I mean, you can, you can observe this world and you can see the pattern, can't you? Many of you look at the news, you, you, you see the pattern. You look at what the way that people live and the way the world runs, you begin to see patterns. You begin to see things that happen over and over and over again in, in the culture at large and even around the world. You say, well, there is something to this. There is a pattern to this world, the way it thinks, the way that it lives. Um, you see uh, people worship themselves, you see them worship materialism, you see them worship status and power, you see uh, 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 people worship stuff, you see people worship uh, substance, uh, alcohol, drugs, all kinds of things are worshiped. We see uh, relationships and the way that people comport themselves is, is at times even savage, and this is, this is almost considered normal. Uh, I was I was reading a story this week of um, this comedian uh, who is has been in the news because of a phew, encounter on a on a date that he was having with a young lady, uh, and it went really off the rails. Um, and you had you had her accusing him of of sexual assault. And, uh, and it created quite a stir because of the hashtag Me Too movement. And even that movement in and of itself, what does it show you? It shows you the savage abuse of women that has happened over and over and over again by men in positions of power all over the place. That's the pattern of this world. And the story was interesting in many, many ways and controversial because people are saying, well, this is not the same thing as the Me Too movement. And, you know, this lady is tarnishing the Me Too movement's reputation because what really happened there was that it was a bad date and it went off the rails. And listen, what happened was the pattern of this world. You had these two people who rolled the dice and had this, this encounter, and it went all over the place, crazy haywire. And now the culture is so far off the rails that you have people saying, well, that's not real me too. Not real me too. The whole thing shows a pattern in this world of savage behavior in relationships. And we see all kinds of patterns in the world. And Paul says, you want to worship God. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a disciple, you need to not conform to all that stuff. You need to live differently because you think differently and you need to not conform, but you be changed. You be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. The way that you think needs to change. And When you change the way that you think, you will eventually change the way that you live. And this is worship. And then he concludes this way. Then you will be able, then, to test and to approve what God's will is. And I've said this to you before. So many people, so many Christians confused about the will of God. What's what's the will of God for my life? And yet when I read Paul, he says, then, after you do all that, then you will be able to test it. You will be able to approve it, implying, yes, this is God's will for my life. No, this is not God's will for my life. There's an old saying, God God loves you and everybody else has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) Well, no, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. The question is, what's that plan? Do you know? If you say it's a total mystery to me, it's totally ambiguous to me, I can't figure it out at all, Paul would say, hmm. Have you? are you conforming to the pattern of this world or are you changing the way that you think and thus changing the way that you live and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is His good, His pleasing His perfect will for your lives would you stand with me please I'd like